The words that I'd like to direct your attention to are found in the last chapter of God's Holy Word, Revelation chapter 22. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 5. This is actually the tail end of uh, the description of the new heaven and new earth that began in chapter 21. So just to set the context for you. The Apostle John writes, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse, And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His bondservants will serve Him. They will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Please pray with me. Lord, we thank You for Your Word that gives us understanding so that we might be saved and that gives us comfort and hope in this life. And I pray that You would comfort my brothers and sisters and give clarity to us as we understand the the plan that You have established from the beginning of time that will eventually come to its fulfillment when You see fit. But Lord, I pray that you would deepen our convictions, deepen our confidence in the world that you have prepared for us so that we would not lose heart and that we would live lives of worship even now as we dwell upon this earth. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In one of his books, Sinclair Ferguson uh, co-wrote with another book, uh, last name Oliphant, if I remember right. Uh, they discuss a radio interview that they gave, that was given to a number of famous people about heaven. And three consistent uh, remarks were made by all these people they interviewed regarding heaven. And the first was, all of these famous people assumed that they were going to be be in heaven. Second of all, They also uh, believed in heaven. And thirdly, none of them mentioned anything about God being in heaven. Which is remarkable. It indicates a number of things. Many people believe in heaven. And I think it's because we have this inherent awareness that this cannot be all that there is to life. The fact that we have these longings that never get fulfilled and the fact that everything dies, everything passes away, nothing lasts. And so there's something in us that just inherently recognizes that this earth is not all that there can be. And so many people imagine heaven as a place that where all of their longings will be fulfilled. So they'll, they imagine it as a place of maybe endless golf or sexual fulfillment or 
uh, just a big house with a table with lots of food and a big yard where they can play football. But the most defining feature of heaven is God. In fact, that's really what the word heaven refers to. Heaven is the dwelling place of God. As you, as you look at the, how the word heaven is used in Scripture, it, it isn't primarily spoken of as our future destination as much as it is where God is. And, of course, we know that we are told that when we die, we will go to be with God. And so, in that sense, we'll be in heaven. But heaven is less of a, a, a location for our future dwelling as much as it is where God is. Now, of course, we know that God is everywhere. God is omnipresent. Um, that's a, a critical feature of our understanding of God. But the scripture also indicates that God dwells in heaven in a particular sense, where his glory is not veiled, and where the holy angels stand before him in all of his splendor and all of his majesty. God is spirit, and therefore he does dwell in a realm outside of the space-time continuum. Yes, God is everywhere present, but the fullness of his glory dwells outside of this earth. And the Bible actually provides scant description of what this dwelling place of God is like. We call heaven. Paul is actually less than helpful when, in this regard when he describes his own vision in 2 Corinthians 12. And speaking of himself, he writes... And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Well, there's your description of heaven. Paul can't tell us because it's that magnificent. But there are things that the Bible does tell us about our future in quite a bit. And so let's consider that. Where, this is with the question, where do we go when we die? And I think that's what most people think of when they think of heaven. Well, the Bible is very, very clear that when we die, we go to be with the Lord. As Jesus told the thief on the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Paul tells the Corinthians that he would rather be absent from the body and at home with the Lord. So he expects to be at home with the Lord when he dies rather than to continue living in this sinful world. Also in the Philippians, he declares his desire to depart and be with Christ. But he also realized it's for the Philippians benefit to, to remain on in the body. So Paul's full expectation is when he dies, he will be with the Lord. And that we see consistently throughout Scripture. But because heaven is outside the space-time continuum, it may be that we will, after we die, that we will not experience um, uh, a, a, a lapse of time. And in fact, that the next thing that we experience after we die is actually our resurrection. Because if, if, there, if uh, God is outside of space-time, matter, which... Modern physics tells us time and matter are, are linked and energy. God dwells with outside of that, then, then there may not be any lapse of time that we experience after we die. And the very next thing that every Christian, every believer experiences is an immediate resurrection. 
that's possible. It's also possible that we dwell in, as disembodied spirits for a period of time in the presence of God. That's probably what most people believe. But either way, our next experience following death is going to be enjoying the presence of God. The next thing that we recognize will be our Lord. And so being with the Lord is massively important to us. And that's what makes heaven, heaven. In fact, that's what heaven is. It's the presence of God. And it was also important to Christ. And he makes that clear in John 14 and 17. He said to his disciples, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, you may be there also. Christ's desire, Christ's goal, Christ's aim in taking on the form of man is to bring his disciples to himself so that they could be with him. And this he indicates in his prayer, in the high priestly prayer, he said, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory, which you've given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. So the reason that God and Christ and the Holy Spirit want us to be with him is because that's exactly what we were created for. We were created to enjoy the presence of God, and in particular, his love Throughout all eternity. And in fact, that's really what worship is. Worship is, as we've seen throughout this series, the Shema, loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and basking and enjoying and delighting in His love for us. So there's this ongoing of mutual love that gets expressed within our relationship with God. And that's, of course, why we long to be together. Love longs to um, express its, uh, its affections for other people. And that's why Christians love to be uh, together in worship in church, is to express love. We want to participate in the love that God has given us. And that's why families long to be together. That's why um, military deployments are so painful. It's because we're separated. We're not with the people we long to be with. And that's also why... Uh, it, reunions are so enjoyable why we long to be reunited. Those who are in love want to be with one another. And that's why we long for heaven where we will in, eternally imbibe God's unceasing and unhindered love through all eternity and, and also express our great love and affection for Him. Because that's what we were created for. Jonathan Edwards is one of his most famous sermons described heaven this way. He said, as God has given the saints and angels love so that their love is chiefly exercised towards God, the fountain of it. They all love God with a supreme love. There is no enemy of God in heaven, but all love him as his children. And they are all united with one mind to breathe forth their whole souls in love to their eternal Father and to Jesus Christ, their common head. Christ loves all His saints in heaven. His love flows out to His whole church there and to every individual member of it. And they all, with one heart and one soul, without any schism in the body, love their common Redeemer. All rejoice in Him. 
the angels concurring, and the angels and saints all love one another. All that glorious society are sincerely united. There is no secret or open enemy among them. Not one heart, but is full of love, nor one person who is not beloved. Everyone there loves every other inhabitant of heaven whom he sees. And so he is mutually beloved by everyone. And so heaven is a world of love. But God's ultimate purpose in our redemption is not simply that we are with him, but his ultimate purpose in redemption is really to restore us to our created purpose that he began back in Genesis chapter 1. To re that was displayed in the Garden of Eden. But again, his goal is not just to restore Eden, but, but actually make the whole cosmos one gigantic Eden. And in fact, all of redemptive history has been progressing to this, to create an entire cosmos, a whole universe that is one massive temple of worship. There are clear stages or phases in God's plan of redemption that I think will help clarify this. So just as, as God has established stages in the redemption of man, he's also established stages in the redemption of creation. So uh, the redemption of man, I think you could, you could go back to the promise that was made in Genesis 3, the proto-euangelion, that God would redeem man through the seed that was promised to the woman. But that promise began to get fulfilled. Um, it began, of course, with Abraham. But God uh, began his redemption with taking Abraham's seed, Israel, out of Egypt and bringing them to Mount Sinai, which is, in fact, a, a little Eden in and of itself, if you recall from our, our studies in Exodus. Um, but then he gave the law to his people, and he promised that he would, if, if people seek him, he would circumcise their hearts. And so men then had God's revelation and a circumcised heart regeneration. And so they were now enabled to truly worship God. Israel could worship God with circumcised hearts. But we know that that was in a, not, totally in a, not totally effectual because Israel sinned continually. And so Christ came. And through his death came not only the um, blessing of regeneration, but also indwelling. After Christ rose from the dead, he gave his promised Holy Spirit. And so believers would not only have regenerated hearts, but they would also be indwelt by God himself in the Holy Spirit, enabling him to have God's law written on their minds and helping them to walk in the spirit rather than in the flesh. But even this was not enough for true worship to take place because as we have already spent time in this worship sphere of service doing, we sin. And so we need to confess, even though we have God the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we still do not truly worship God. Which tells us more is necessary. And that's why, of course, Christ rose from the dead. Because we too need regenerated bodies. Our flesh is still corrupted. So there needs to be even a greater work done in us, which is what, we, of course, we look forward to when we will get our resurrected bodies. 
So there, is, there are phases in God's redemption of man, but there are also phases in God's redemption of creation. God gave the law and his instructions on how to build the tabernacle in order to create a temporary and transportable Eden. And if you remember from our study of Leviticus, that's what the tabernacle and later on its, its other form, the temple, really were. It was a miniature Eden where the high priest could go in like Adam would go before the Lord and could uh, minister on behalf of the people. And then, of course, Jesus came and tabernacled among us and was God's new temple. But that temple was also destroyed when he was crucified. But then he was resurrected. But upon his resurrection, Jesus said that he was creating a new temple, the temple of the church. In fact, we as Christians are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But even when, you, when that phrase is used, it's not primarily us as individuals being the temple of the Holy Spirit, though we are, but really as a corporate body. The church is the new temple that seeks to worship God. And many people assume that the church is the final temple, but actually the Bible promises two more temples, two more phases of this redemption of creation. There will be a temple in the millennial kingdom. And that's described in the book of Ezekiel 40 to 47. And this is during the, the reign of Christ. And then during this time, Jerusalem will be purified from sin. It says in Zechariah 14, 11. But there will also be, there will still be sin in the rest of the world. In Jerusalem, which is, has its new temple, there will not be sin. Jesus will reign there and cast out all sin in the millennial kingdom. But there will still be sin upon the earth because there will still be a need for Christ to rule with a rod of iron as he exercises his authority over the nation. There will also be a final rebellion, we're told, at the end of his reign. That's in Revelation 20. But then, after that rebellion, he will cast all the wicked into the lake of fire, including death and Hades, and then he will make a completely new creation that is the whole universe, the whole cosmos will be completely purified and without sin. And this is what's described in Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 as the new heaven and the new earth. And so this is my point. God's ultimate goal is to both restore man to his original created purpose of true worship, but also to restore his sanctuary, the place where he will be worshipped as well. And I think it's often missed that the tabernacle and temple, um, or it's often assumed that the tabernacle and temple were pointers, are pointers to Christ. And that's not, that's not actually the best way of describing it. The high priest, you can say, or the sacrificial system is a pointer to our need for Christ. But the tabernacle and the temple are actually pointers to the new creation that God is ultimately going to bring about, the new Eden. And what I want you to notice in the text before us is that Scripture ends very similar to how it begins with man in the garden. Except this new heavens, this new garden, this new earth, it's not just a restored Eden. It is like Eden on steroids. Or better yet, Eden on horse steroids. I mean, it is greater and grander 
than even the original garden that he had created. And that really is the point of this, these verses, verses, chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. This Eden will be greater in, in its extent and in its perfection. God will vastly improve both man as his worshipers and also his creation. Let's look first at the river of life that is described. It says, Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Well, you might recall in Genesis, it, it says that there was a river that actually flowed out of Eden and then it created these other rivers. But of course, the river that flowed out of Eden didn't bring life. I mean, in one sense it did. It watered plants. But not like this Eden. Not like this river in this Eden. In fact, in, in that Eden, the only object that is, was said to provide life was the tree of life. The tree of life which Adam and Eve were prevented from eating from after they sinned. The fall brought death and filth into the world. And so for, if they were to eat of that tree of life, they would have lived in perpetual death. An existence outside of God's presence. But the river that is mentioned here actually brings life. It is a river of life, much like the, the tree of life was a brought life. And it, of course, a river is, has water. It's actually the water in this river is called the water of life. And, and in the Bible, we know that the, that, uh, the water uh, signifies cleansing, a washing, purification. That's, kind of, that's the, uh, the point behind baptism. We're washed from our sins. That's the significance. So water cleanses, but it also brings life. So just think of a, a man in a desert thirsting. You, he has water and it brings life to his, to his body. And so the water in the new heavens and new earth all, will do both uh, have a purifying as well as a life-giving influence. Because it says actually that they flowed, this river flows directly from the throne of God. The point is that life and eternity will be completely defined by purity and holiness because it is life there will be sustained by the very presence of God himself, the fountain of life. Everything in creation, everything will be hooked up to the source of all life himself. And the source of all power and goodness and love. Just to, just to get a sense of what this will be like, just imagine if we had the ability to um, harness all of the power of all of the atoms in the universe. Like just one atom that was, the power of one atom is what was enough to flatten Hiroshima, right? An atomic bomb. Imagine if we took all of the power of all the atoms across the world and harnessed all of that power and energy or all of the atoms within the sun or across the universe. If we could harness all of that power into one source. But then just think, God spoke and he brought all of that power into existence. 
So the one who could create all of that power just with one word is the one who is going to be fueling all of creation. There will be, we will be fully hooked up to the ultimate life power source in the, in the world, God himself. One day earth will be infused not only with infinite power though, but with glory and holiness and love unceasing forever and ever and ever. And that, of course, is also why the water is described as being crystal clear to symbolize that being in God's presence will bring purity and holiness as we live in the transcendent glory of God. So that's what this river of life signifies. Let's look at also at the tree of life. It says that this river is in the middle of its street. And on either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The word for tree here is singular, as it's translated. But most scholars uh, actually think it should be translated uh, with a plural, a collective singular. Because, um, well, for a number of different reasons, but... The significance is that there are actually probably more many trees that are lining both banks of the river. So this, what's being signified is that that single tree of life in the Garden of Eden has now become multiple trees in the new Eden. Multiple trees of life. And in the final Eden, these trees will align both sides of the banks of the river of life as it flows down the middle of this great street in the New Jerusalem. And it's a strange description, the fact that it, the river flows in the middle of a street. That's not how we compose or structure most streets today. I suppose we could, but it would be odd. And then having it flanked by trees of life. But the strangeness of this description actually is meant to emphasize one key point. Notice what gets what word gets repeated. Life. You, the river flows with eternal life. The trees are trees of life. And in the middle of the, the street is a river of life. All symbolize pure, unceasing, God-sustained life. And, and just recall that the last words that were spoken to Adam and Eve as they were uh, told to exit the Garden of Eden and never return was in reference to the cherubim guarding the way to the tree of life. Adam and Eve were told, you can never, or I shouldn't say never because they will eventually, but you cannot enter this garden in your current state. They were barred and exposed to an existence of death that awaited all who lived outside the gates of Eden. But, the, but in this new garden, the new heaven and new earth, notice that all, all of the inhabitants will be able to eat of the tree of life. So we go from nobody to all. A vast reversal. And we're told that the trees yield 12 different kinds of fruits that they yield every month. Similarly, there are going to be fruit trees in the millennial temple that's described in Ezekiel uh, 40 to 47. 
And those, those, uh, those trees, we're told, will bear fruit every month. But here, the, tr- the fruit trees in the, in the new heaven, the new earth, will, bro- will produce 12 different kinds of fruit every month. And the point is that there will always be variable and abundant fruit available. And there will be no seasons of death, right? Now we're going into autumn where trees die. There are seasons that are dictated by death. But there, there will no longer be any death. All will be life and yet it will continue to produce with great abundance. And really this continues what was written in chapter 21 verse 4. Where there will be no more death or mourning, crying or pain. And there will be no more hunger. All needs will be met in eternity. That's the point. That's the significance of the trees of life. And it says that their leaves are for the healing of the nations. Now, it might sound that there, like it might, there might need to still be healing, but that's not so much the point. Um, just as in gen, uh, the verse we just looked at, 21.4, it does not suggest that, that, that just because God will wipe away tears from their eyes means that there will all continue to be tears, there will continue to be pain. The point is, um, with the establishment of this new heavens and new earth, the healing is begun. That there will no longer need to be any healing actually after this point in the new heavens and new earth. So the, the, the point here is that healing will have occurred. And the reference to the nations, I think, also symbolizes a reversal going back to Genesis. As you recall, the nations were scattered after the Tower of Babel. And God actually selected one particular nation out of all the nations for, to, to, to begin the, the progress of reversal. But here, that curse upon all of those nations has completely been reversed. All of the nations will be healed and have access to these trees. And the fact that this re- uh, refers to the reversal of the curse is actually substantiated by the very next clause in verse 3 says there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him. Similarly, in Zechariah 14, 11, it notes that in the millennial kingdom, when Christ reigns upon the earth, there will no longer be any curse. But there, that's in reference to the holy city where the temple will reside and where Christ will rule, the new Jerusalem. There will no longer be any curse there in the city, but outside the city, there will still be elements of the curse. But in Revelation 22, this curse is going to be removed from the entire cosmos. And notice next the, the next phrase. And his bond servants will serve him. The word bond servants is doulos, typically translated slave. Christ, or Paul calls himself a slave of God frequently. The, the word serve is another familiar word, latreo. And it can be translated either serve or worship. And both work. Uh, this is the same word that was used in Romans 12.1 that we looked at a few weeks ago. Let your lives be uh, a living sacrifice. This is your spiritual form of worship, your reasonable form of worship. Same word. Service. 
And the word in the Greek Old Testament uh, is actually what is the word is used to describe the work of the priests in the tabernacle and in the temple. They had a holy work, a holy service. They their holy service was their worship as they led the other saints in worship. The, the, the words used to describe the resurrected saints in chapter seven of Revelation It says this in verse 15, for this reason, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. So even in Revelation chapter seven, you see that what where things are going is this ultimate uh, reversal of the curse and creating a holy people, uh, a kingdom of priests serving him in a holy temple, which will become, of course, the cosmos. And actually the saints are called priests of God in Revelation, in verse chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 5, verse 10, and also in chapter 20, verse 6. Again, emphasizing what the saints' role is going to be in eternity. They will serve God as priests. You might recall, even as I say that, the role that was given to Adam in Eden. In Genesis 2.15, Adam was placed in the garden to serve or worship God in it. It's the same word that's used here. And really, this is the idea. Uh, This word that can be translated service or worship, really it conveys a holy work. Work that is done to the glory of God. Work that is set apart for Him and for His glory and for the benefits of His people. Holy service, I think, is a good translation. And it all just flows into everything we've studied. As we serve and worship God, um, we do so not just in our actions, but loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Our strength is to be used in service, holy service to God and in His presence. One commentator says this about the service we will give to the Lord in eternity. Thus John describes the new Jerusalem as the restored Eden, where the redeemed will fulfill God's original intention for the creation of man. They will serve and worship God and the Lamb whose glory will fill the city. And so like Adam was supposed to do and yet failed, he did, he did a bad job of guarding the garden. He let a snake lead him into temptation and sin into the world and destruction and death followed. He did not serve God as he should have. But here everything will be reversed and we will be restored to the role that Adam was supposed to have. And yet there will never be any failure because we will have resurrected glorified bodies and we will lead creation and worship. And again, the reference here isn't to singing. We need to recognize worship. It doesn't primarily refer to singing as much as it does to service unto God. And I think really loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So that's what we we will live, we will work, we will serve, and lead all of the rest of creation to do the same, even as Adam was supposed to. It also says we will see his face. His servants will see his face, 
and his name will be on their foreheads. And this is a loaded description. That term, see his face. You might recall that God told Moses when Moses requested to see his glory, right? In Revelation, sorry, not Revelation, Exodus chapter 33, God says, no man, Moses, can look upon my face and live. Because they would disintegrate. And at this time, though, man will stand in the full blazing glory of God and not disintegrate. In fact, quite the opposite. Instead, they will only be eternally enlivened and invigorated. So instead of being blown to bits by the glory of God, just the opposite will happen. God's glory will give us eternal life continually. We will be full of the life that is in God. As we stand in his glory. It also says his name will be on our foreheads. Now that seems odd until you catch the imagery. Um, Aaron, we are told in the book of Exodus, had the phrase holy to the Lord written on his forehead. And so did all the high priests. Also in Revelation 3.12, Jesus promises his followers that he will write his name upon them. And as you know, the name, the word name in scripture refers to the character of someone or the possession of someone. And that's what's being conveyed here. By having God's name written upon our foreheads, it signifies, first of all, that we belong wholly and completely to God. We're his. But second of all, that we will also have his character. We will be like him in his holiness and purity, his love, his courage, his faithfulness, every beautiful attribute of God that can be communicated to man will be ours. So we will see his face, fulfilling a hope that was reflected in 1 John 3.2. Also Job 19. Remember Job says, I know that my Redeemer lives in And he will stand upon the earth and I will see his face. Psalm 17, 15, Matthew 5, 8, 1 Corinthians 3, 12. So all all of those promises that we will one day see his face will finally be fulfilled. But there's even more being reflected here. You, this church is very much aware of the Aaronic benediction that was given in Numbers chapter 6 because almost after every service, that's the blessing, the benediction that I give. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Catch the rest of the phrase. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. If you recall from our study of Leviticus, what that benediction was actually... um, explaining is what the tabernacle was seeking to explain. So you remember that there was in the tabernacle, there was the menorah, the lampstand that shone its light as it was hooked up to the oil that was underneath it. And it would shine light and the light was structured to shine upon the table of showbread. And the showbread were 12 loaves that symbolized the people of Israel. And so this is what was supposed to be conveyed 
God's desire in giving Israel the law, in providing them with the sacrificial system, was so that they could worship Him in His presence. Just like the the twelve loaves stood in the glory of the light of the menorah. This is what God always wanted for creation. Even as He put lamps in the sky above, the sun and the stars, to give light upon His creation. And likewise, in the new heavens and new earth, there will be no sun, no need for it. Because the Lord himself will be the light and he will shine forever upon his people in glory. Fulfilling this imagery that was given to Aaron in his benediction. The high priest's benediction. The chief priest's benediction. This is all meant to illustrate God's ultimate design for his people. And it will all come to fulfillment in the new earth. And because it will be the full revelation of God's glory there, there will be no more night, it says. There will no longer be any night. And they will have no need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them. So not only will we worship God as priests throughout eternity, it also says, and they will reign forever and ever. Which, of course, begs the question, reign over what? I have some ideas, maybe I'll share afterwards. Um, But I think what we can say for certain is I think we will reign in much the same way that Adam reigned over creation as the image of God. He reigned over creation as its leader, its worship leader, as he tended the garden. And so um, maybe it will be something like Narnia, Caraparaval, men ruling over creatures. Maybe the creatures will talk like the serpent did in the garden. I don't know. That's speculative. I should hold back on that. I don't know. But we will be ruling over creation. And we will rule forever and ever. And again, this is the point, though. The whole story of redemption from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 is about restoring man to his created purpose. It's not just about bringing forgiveness of sins to man, although that's necessary. But the reason we need forgiveness of sins is so that we could have resurrected bodies. And the reason we need that is so that we can do what God originally designed. This is all about God fulfilling not only his original design, but making it better, right? This is all about Genesis 20, sorry, Genesis 50, 20. You meant it for evil, Satan, but God meant it for good and greater glorious good than anybody could have ever fashioned. And nothing will prevent that good from taking place. That's the point. God's purposes will stand. And that one sin that led to horrific destruction over millennia, God has been working not only to reverse the curse, but to work it for good beyond all of our wildest imaginations. Brothers and sisters, you were created to worship. You are born again to worship. And that's what we can do now. We don't have to wait 
for eternity to do what God has created us to do. We can do this now. Again, not only have we been born again, but we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Yes, I know we will struggle, and that's why we look forward to getting our resurrected bodies. But at the same time, let's take full advantage of what we can do so that we would practice now what we're going to be doing in heaven. Brothers and sisters, if you don't want to live for the glory of God now, you don't want to go to heaven. Because that's what heaven's going to be completely about. Serving Him. Exalting Him. So really, our understanding of heaven should radically affect the way that we live. I think the converse is also true. The way that we live really demonstrates what we understand heaven to be like. Just take for instance Christ. Consider the way Jesus lived. Why did Jesus do what he did? He was willing to let go of everything. in order to bring worship to God, that, his, that God might have a people to worship Him in eternity. Or take also Paul, right? I count my life as no account unto myself, as long as I can just finish my race that the Lord has appointed me. To live is Christ and to die is gain, right? The, re- the reason Paul lived the way he lived wasn't just because he had the Holy Spirit and Christ told him to go bring the gospel to the Gentiles. It was because Paul understood what heaven was really going to be about. Because he had read the scriptures and in God's mercy, he had also received a vision of what the new heaven would eventually be like as well. But if biblical illustrations... Are too much. I guess we can also look at John the Baptist. But even historical figures, Jonathan Edwards. The reason Jonathan Edwards made the resolutions that he made, they just sound so outlandish to so many people. The reason he made those resolutions, the reason he studied for 14 hours a day sometimes, the reason he was willing to submit to cruel leaders. The reason he devoted so much time to meditating on the glory of God and communicating at the people is because he understood what everything was really all about. Same thing with John Owen and John Bunyan. Right? That's why John Bunyan was willing to spend 12 years in prison, though it, he said seeing, not being able to be with his family was like ripping the flesh off of his bones. And he could have been released. If he just would have agreed not to preach. But he realized what really mattered. His choices. His choice to lose. Was because he understood losing now meant greater gain in the future. The way we live now really reflects what we understand heaven to be like. And if the dominant activity in heaven is true worship. Again, I'm not thinking of singing, but but of holy service. Loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, even as we bask in His love that He has enjoyed throughout all eternity within the Trinity. Loving God and enjoying His love. If that's what heaven is about, then those who realize that, realize that that is exactly what they can be doing now. And not just with God, but with one another. Again, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and in my Father's house, 
referring to the temple, there are many rooms. What's the new temple? It's the new creation. And what are those new rooms? Resurrected bodies of saints who could worship him in eternity. Brothers and sisters, the church is a miniature reflection of what heaven is going to be like. This is why I want our congregation to worship together and why I I think we should do everything we can to be together and to spend time together at least once a week, but more so um, throughout the, the week as well. Importantly on Sundays, but throughout the week, because this is what it's all about. It's all about loving one another and helping one another see and enjoy the beauty of God. What we do now, we will be doing for all eternity. Why not start now? And give all of our lives to this purpose. Brothers and sisters, as Jesus told Martha, one thing is necessary. And Mary found it. And what she found will not be taken away from her. That one thing is worship. And that's what heaven's about. Right? The greatest, these things remain. Faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. Heaven, brothers and sisters, will be a world of love. C.S. Lewis seeks to convey heaven in a final book of the Narnia series, The Last Battle. He says, The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up at what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed. And then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Prehee, come further up, come further in. Truly worshiping God in the fullness of his presence is what we were created for. And this is what we will do for all eternity. And yet we will do so in a deeper and more real world than the one that we currently experience. If we can imagine that. Praise the Lord. Father, thank you for this amazing gift that you have provided for us. Lord, not only do we don't deserve anything but hell, we certainly don't deserve salvation, but we do not deserve to reign with you. But we know that the only reason we will is because you sent your son to redeem Adam's helpless race. We could do nothing. And so, you did everything for us, Christ. And so, for that reason, now and for under eternity, we will continue to sing, for from you and through you and to you belong all glory and honor and praise. Not to us, not to us, O Lord, but to you and to you alone belong glory and honor and worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.